Presenting Production Manners with Mr. Bungle. Rule number one. When couples in polite society want to dance, the music must be refined and elegant. Example. But Mr. Bungle's swinging dance music is boorish and inelegant. How uncouth. Rule number two. A well-mannered producer arranges background vocals with delicacy and care. I can't stop this feeling deep inside of me. When Mr. Bungle arranges backing vocals, it sounds like this. How churlish. Rule number three. When the time comes to end a song, a respectable producer brings the music to a gentle cadence. Mr. Bungle ends a song like this. And on that note, this is Discord and Rhyme. Goodbye, Sober Day, Hello, Milky Way, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. Roll call, Rich Bunnell, Dan Watkins, Mike DeFabio, and Phil Maddox. So Dan has bungled his way into the hosting slot for this week somehow. So what album do you have for us, Dan, and why did you pick it? I have Mr. Bungle's 1999 album, California. I chose it because there was a time in my life where Mike Patton was a very important musical figure. And he's mostly known as the vocalist for Faith No More, but he had this entire other career as just kind of a super experimental musician who's involved with just dozens of projects. And, you know, I don't still love all of them, but I think that the by far the most talented group he ever worked with was Mr. Bungle. I think they brought up the best in him. It was kind of a democracy, so they all put in their own contributions um, so it really kind of highlights what I think the Mike Patton universe does best. And if I were to highlight the album that would best uh, illustrate this, it'd be California, because it's, I think, more approachable than their other albums, but it also retains all the experimentation that made them great. Yeah, I'm glad that we're starting to talk about the wider world of Mike Patton, because we covered Faith No More a while back on the podcast, but it was like We Care A Lot, which was from the Chuck Mosley era. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, how did Mr. Bungle first make their way into your life, Dan? Well, it's, it's funny. It's kind of similar to my ween story, which I'm sure no one remembers. But as a kid, I used to spend a lot of time just wasting time in the mall CD store while my mom shopped for clothes and whatever. Uh, that way I could just be in my own little world. Uh, was it Sam Goody? It, no, it was called Disc Jockey, which I don't think was even a chain anywhere. It was just this rinky-dink little store. Uh, but I never had any money to spend, so I would just wander the aisles aimlessly, being the store's least favorite customer every Saturday. And one day my eye caught an album cover with a painting of this disheveled, 
possibly drunk clown holding an extinguished match that had the name Mr. Bungle emblazoned over it. And I remember just looking at it thinking, what the hell could this possibly sound like? And just kind of flipping it over and like all the band members had aliases and it's just a very cryptic looking package. Uh, of course, again, I had no money and the parental advisory sticker on the uh, label would ensure that I did not hear the album for many years to come. So fast forward several years when I'm in high school, I'm in the UCD store and there it is. And you know what? I do have eight dollars and my mom <laughs> can't tell me that I can't buy this. So I buy it. I get it home. I put it on and I'm not really sure what I think of it. Uh, it was just sort of this odd blend of circusy ska music peppered with some, by this point, fairly unfashionable funk metal. <laughs> And it was certainly interesting, but it didn't quite feel like my thing. But I was curious enough to do a little reading about the band, and I decided that the follow-up album, Disco Volante, sounded like it might be a little more my cup of tea, which my musical diet at the time was basically Frank Zappa and anything that seemed weird. Uh, and so I went out and bought it, and indeed it was my cup of tea. Uh, it was weird in a way that I found much more palatable. Uh, it was a lot more musically mature and adventurous. So from there, I completed my Mr. Bungle discography with the one other album they had, which is California, which we're talking about today. And from there, I was basically off to the races on my Mike Patton binge, uh, working through all the Faith and More albums and all the other side projects. And this happened to be during what was essentially the peak era of Mike Patton productivity. He Basically had a new album out every other month from a different side project. Uh, it was a good time to be a Mike Patton fan, basically. And even the stuff that wasn't quite my thing was at the very least interesting. And admittedly, over the years, my interest in Mike Patton has cooled considerably. Uh, but the best stuff of his I still really like and hold highly as some of my favorite albums. Well, as for me, I got into Mr. Bungle because there was a point when our collective musical mentor, Mr. Mark D. Prindle, was reviewing all <laughs> sorts of Mike Patton projects, and every Faith No More album was incredibly cheap used at the store, so I picked them up in pretty quick succession. They were like 2 or $3 a piece. And yeah, like, like Dan said, from that point forward, it felt like Mike Patton just showed up in everything. Like in the yeah. fall of 2004, completely by chance, I bought two completely stylistically different albums he showed up on. The first one was Bjork's album Medulla, where he performs wordless background vocals on a couple of songs. All right. <laughs> The other was the album White People by Handsome Boy Modeling School, where he does lead vocals on the song Are You Down With It. Build it smile after all, but we're still living. Drop the prom, right or wrong, but we're still living. Turn the page, I'll rage, I get down with it. Keep on dreaming now. 
since then, just like everywhere I've looked, there's Mike Patton, including video games. He voiced the anger core in the video game Portal. <laughs> Sure sounds like him. Yep, definitely. And even now in 2022, he was tapped to sing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song in the upcoming game Shredder's Revenge. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, heroes in the hot shell. That's turtle power. Yeah, so he's like a guide vocal for my life. And California is probably my single favorite album he's ever been involved with. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. So, Mike, how about you? I discovered Mr. Bungle in high school. I was probably about 16 or so. I think I I found out about their album Disco Volante uh, just browsing around the All Music Guide. And it it sounded really wild and crazy. And the song titles, you know, the songs had names like Everyone I Went to High School With Is Dead and Desert Search for Technoala. And I, <laughs> it just looked like something I had to hear. Also, Mike Patton was kind of the stuff of legend. The big rumor I remember hearing about him was he peed into a shoe and drank it on stage, (laughs) which is partly true. I won't tell you what part was true. But uh, my friend Ashley had she was much more uh, knowledgeable about uh, alternative music than I was and just, you know, things things that weren't rush. And she had every Mr. Bungle album. So she let me borrow Disco Volante. And I didn't like it. My taste had not uh, expanded enough to welcome things like free jazz and death metal. And there was just nothing. There was very little that I could sort of hang my hat on musically. I've, I've come to appreciate it much more now, but at the time it was completely impenetrable. So she gave me California to borrow. I listened to that and I just loved it right away. It was so much more, it had just as much going on, but it was so much more coherent. It was, it was organized in a way that I could understand. And since then, if anything, my appreciation for it has only gone up and up. So Phil, how did you get into Mr. Bungle, Mike Patton, et cetera, in California? So much like you, I heard of Mr. Bungle due to the reviews of one Mr. Mark Prindle. And their music seemed interesting to me. So... I got a copy of California, like right around the year 2000, 2001, somewhere around there via the BMG music service. Remember them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember them. They weren't the 11 CDs for a penny one. They were the buy one, get 11 free with no further commitment one. But anyway, I put in California and I did not like it really at all the first time I listened to it, because I guess I had kind of thought that like. Mike Patton was like a heavy metal guy and then Sweet Charity came on and I'm like, what is this? No, thanks. (laughs) And I just kind of put the album away for a while. And then later, 
like when I was in college, I got the debut Mr. Bungle album, which I thought was a lot of fun. And then I went back to California now that my tastes had matured a bit more. I'm like, oh, this album's great. And then it was kind of off to the races buying all the Mike Patton stuff I could find from there. But of all of his stuff, California is still my favorite thing he's been involved with. All right. Well, let's bungle with Mr. Bungle. (laughs) Dan, why don't you tell us more about the band and how they started bungling? They began bungling in 1985 in Eureka, California, with key members Mike Patton on vocals, Trey Spruance on guitar, and Trevor Dunn on bass. They began as a death metal band, but quickly started to expand their sound to incorporate ska influences as they got into like Oingo Boingo and Fishbone and Camper Van Beethoven, which kind of surprised me as an influence. Oh, well, there's there's like ska elements in Camper Van Beethoven. Their first song on their first album is called Border Ska. They just seem so at odds with Mr. Bungle in my mind. But yeah. I, yeah, I can see the, the traces of it. They're, they're both trippy California music, though. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but because of the sky influences, they added a saxophonist Theo Langell. The band name came to them while watching the PB Herman show, a 1981 HBO concert special featuring a slightly more adult oriented version of the Paul Rubens character. This is before... Pee-wee's Big Adventure and the the children's show. Yeah, yeah it's the, really it's it's really funny though if you'd ever seen it. Uh, Phil Hartman's yeah, it's in it. Damn good. Yeah. Um, but in the show they featured this 1959 educational film called Beginning Responsibility: Lunchroom Manners, which is this goofus and gallant type segment featuring uh, the demonstration of good versus bad manners at, at school. And in the film, Mr. Bungle is the goofus character, who is the bad kid who does not wash his hands and he runs ahead of the lunch line. The children knew that even though Mr. Bungle was funny to watch, he wouldn't be much fun to eat with. Phil knew that a Mr. Bungle wouldn't have many friends. He wouldn't want to be like Mr. Bungle. During the late 80s, the band recorded several demos featuring titles as great as OU818, God Damn It I Love America, and The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny. A couple of these demos wound up in the hands of San Francisco band Faith No More, who happened to be looking for a replacement for exiting vocalist Chuck Mosley. They were impressed with Patton's versatility and hired him for the job. This was lucky timing for Patton because it was right as Faith No More was basically making the leap from college radio to big time MTV exposure with the hit Epic. The Real Thing became a platinum record and sent the band on a massive tour of the U.S. and South America. Meanwhile, Patton continued his involvement with Mr. Bungle, moving the band to San Francisco. Around this time, the band personnel was solidified with Clinton Bear McKinnon on sax and Danny Heifetz on drums. In one of the craziest cases of an uncommercial band stumbling into a major label contract, Warner Brothers Records 
signed them to a deal in 1990. I'm guessing the Faith No More connection might have helped a little bit. Their self-titled debut was produced by experimental jazz musician John Zorn, and anyone who blindly bought the album due to its Faith No More connections was greeted with a wild, confrontational mix of ska, metal, circus music, funk, and jazz. pursued various other projects before reconvening in 1995 for the follow-up Disco Volante. This album was a giant leap in terms of maturity and depth of musical influences. The flirtations of ska and funk metal had moved aside for eastern influences, avant-garde experimentations, jazz fusion, and ambient music. took another extended break, during which time Faith No More had broken up. In 1998, Mr. Bungle began working on their third album, California, which had proved to be their most ambitious album to date, utilizing 14 additional musicians, recording in three different studios on multiple 24-track machines. And with the release of the record, the band decided to hire a manager and put some actual effort into supporting the album on the road. They made a questionable decision of participating in the Snowcore Tour, which was a metal festival featuring bands System of a Down, Incubus, and Puya. I don't know who Puya is. Is anybody Puya? Know who I do not. They had a song called Oasis, I think, that was like kind of a rap metal hit. I think it was might have been in Spanish. Phil, I was hoping that you would be the one who knew who that was. <laughs> but I vaguely remember them. Like I saw I them eight be. times. <laughs> The band was reluctant to join the tour, knowing they would be entirely out of place, but they ultimately felt that the exposure couldn't hurt. And by most accounts, these were not enjoyable shows for the band or for the audience. The band eventually began to just mess with the young metal audiences with stunts like taking to the stage, dresses the village people, and acting <laughs> as flamboyantly as possible. Touring was further complicated with another strange phenomenon, the rekindling of a feud between Mike Patton and the Red Hot Chili Peppers vocalist Anthony Kiedis. So way back when the Faith No More song Epic was getting big on MTV, Anthony Kiedis saw the video and was outraged. He felt that Mike Patton was just ripping off his entire essence and was just <laughs> drawing off on him in interviews, making a big stink about it. Anthony Kiedis, so, you're the first person to combine funk, rapping, and white people. You're a genius. <laughs> Look, not all of us are poets who can write lyrics like, up to my ass in alligators. Let's get it on with the alligator haters. <laughs> That's not bad. I can't, I can't argue with that. So you fast forward to 1999, and it just so happens that the two bands are label mates at Warner Brothers. 
And as Mr. Bungle is scheduling the release of California, the Chili Peppers are preparing the release of Californication. So supposedly in a move to avoid confusion, Warner Brothers pushed the Mr. Bungle record back a month. Mr. Bungle is not pleased with this. And to further the conflict, and again, the timeline gets a little fuzzy on this, but from what I understand, the feelings were so bad with Anthony Kiedis that he went out of his way to have Mr. Bungle removed from summer festival tours that the two bands shared. And in retaliation, Mr. Bungle played a Halloween show that year dressed as the Chili Peppers, clowning their way through a few other covers and pretending to inject heroin on stage. It was in about as bad taste as you can imagine. Yeah, as much as I like to dunk on Red Hot Chili Peppers, I, I, I can't defend that concert. No, it's pretty indefensible. Yeah, and, and from what I've read that both bands have settled out of the, the year since, and it seems like it was definitely a very much a thing between Anthony Kiedis and Mike Patton specifically. Yeah. Uh, I've read Flea say nice things about uh, the band, so, you know, it's lead singer syndrome, I guess. But once the tour wound down, the band was kind of spent. Um, I, I, I don't think the tour was a pleasant experience overall. And they went into what they called a hibernation period that would basically last until 2020, until like a reformed version of the band reunited for a few shows and did a re-recording of their demo album, The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny, which wasn't what I was expecting or really hoping a Mr. Bungle reunion to be, but... I guess you take what you can get. I guess it's kind of the most Mr. Bungle thing, because I don't think that's what anybody wanted them to do. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what they yeah, did. Yeah, I remember that news breaking and thinking, ooh, oh. <laughs> okay, well, so before we get started on California, we'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Julia and Phil, who doesn't want to be like Mr. Bungle, but I hope is listening to this episode. <laughs> So thanks, both of you, and thanks, as always, to everyone who's been supporting us along the way. We love being scrappy and independent, and we're able to do that because of your sweet charity. Any other listeners who are interested in chipping in with a monthly donation can sign up at patreon.com slash discordpod. In return, you get awesome, exclusive bonus episodes. Recently, we've talked about hilarious old songs about the internet, our favorite Disney songs, and the Eurovision Song Contest, whose finals last night are the reason I am currently hungover. Another great way to support us is to leave a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever app you use. It helps other listeners find our show, and it gives us a wonderful dopamine hit. If you just want to say hi, we can be found on Twitter at DiscordPod, or you can email DiscordPod at gmail.com, although we might be robots. We're not sure. Let's see if we can find out. California, here we come. So track one is called Sweet Charity. The parade, raindrops will turn the laughter forever. 
on this song some big boomy drum wow sweet charity is an almost deceptively approachable welcoming opener for an album that is chock full of hairpin stylistic turns it's a ruse it begins with soothing ocean sounds seagulls and some breezy hawaiian steel guitar it actually feels like the album cover it's like you're right there with those two silhouetted figures on the beach the mood then briefly shifts to a minor key before expanding into the big bombastic crooner ballad and it, it kind of seems like the right way to begin the album, because if you look at the album as a package, again, with the album cover, and this is track one, it, it feels like a very lounge sort of album. You just have a brandy snifter in your living room while you listen to it. The orchestration here is beautiful. It's gigantic. You know, if you're, if you're coming to this from Disco Volante, it's another league of production. And the twists here, they're a little unexpected twists, but they're agreeable twists. They're not jarring. Even a little bossa nova thing in the middle there. It, it's, it, it makes sense here. And going back to the the production, there's just so much interesting instrumental texture here with the clavinet, the various types of percussion. You have that really deep reverberated Pet Sounds guitar tone, which is all over the album. And I love the sound of it. That very like spring reverb sound on the those yeah. deep guitar notes. Uh, and again, if, if you only know Mike Patton from Epic, this is a totally different Mike Patton, uh, his vocal approach here is just, it, it's so rich. Sorry, Rich. Uh, and <laughs> no, I, I love to be compared to Mike Patton. I'm honored. <laughs> I mean, he's really exploring the range of his voice here from the, the deep doo-wop bass to that effortless falsetto. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a really great performance. As for the, the name of the song, Sweet Charity is the name of a stage musical by Bob Fosse that Fosse later made into a 1969 movie with Shirley MacLaine. And it's probably most notable for the song Hey Big Spender, which I primarily know just from the Simpsons parody. Hey Big Spender! I didn't even know that was a real song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it is. Hey, big spender, dig this blender, rainbow suspenders. Hey, big spender, we surrender. Spend some 
do it table three. I've never seen the film, and it seems that there isn't really a direct connection here other than the borrowed title. Uh, Patton kind of has a, a, a pattern or a... a he he, he kind of tends to draw from old Hollywood a lot mm-hmm. in his lyrics, and he doesn't really write a lot of deep, uh, meaningful lyrics. Usually, he's admitted himself that he kind of just writes words that sound nice and interesting together. And a lot of times, I think he'll just lift phrases from various things that, that sound cool. That's probably what he's doing here. So, Phil, what do you think of how this album gets off to a start? Well, as I mentioned before, when I first heard this, when I was a teenager, I didn't like it at all. But I've come around to it in a big way. I love this song. I really love the production. It's very clear there's a big Brian Wilson influence here. Like the way they're mixing everything, the way things are assembled. Just fantastic stuff. Uh, Like you said, uh, Patton's vocals are great. It's almost got like a weird like exotica feel to it. But it's just interesting because it's a relatively straightforward song, but it does take a few twists and turns. Like it kind of gives you some hints if you're just listening to this album blind that you're not listening to any kind of normal band here. Although the extent to which you're not listening to a normal band would not be clear until the next track. Yeah, well, to jump off of that point, uh, like one thing that strikes me about this one, like right from the jump is, well, you might notice that it does not sound like the Red Hot Chili Peppers at all, for one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But also, as far as I'm aware, it it also bears no resemblance to any music any members of Mr. Bungle had produced before. And, you know, they've been in a lot of bands, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I just can't draw a line between this and anything I've heard from any of them. But it feels to me like for a lot of this album, they really just like wiped the slate clean and tried to do something completely new. And, you know, that's part of what makes this album so much fun and so unpredictable. Like they're leaning on a lot of established genre tropes, but like they're they're also not falling into like songwriting patterns that they've been following for years. There's like there's like this really anarchic sense that they're not following the rules at all, but in a fun way. And also this album is going to go all over the place musically, but I think this song is a good like basic template for what you're going to hear going forward, like kind of a mixture of like, like you said, the Beach Boys, but also Frank Zappa, like the the Mm -hmm. Bada that kind of reminds me of him. And and if you look up interviews with Trey Spruance, he'll go off at length about how California like isn't necessarily a concept album, but like the sound of it is meant to evoke the spirit of the state of California, as well as all of its like many, many contradictions. And he'll wax poetic on this for like 10 minutes at a time. It's very entertaining to read. And like with, with that in mind, I think those are two interesting artists to draw on. Like you've got the Beach Boys who are like California natives who capture all of the sunshine of the state, but also, you know, all of the very deep sadness. And then you got Frank Zappa, who like wasn't born in California, but he moved there really early in life, which gave him like just enough distance from the madness surrounding him to, you know, be a snarky commentator on it as an outsider. And that's that's what I think of when that like brief bossa nova bit that Dan mentioned shows up. It's like the myth of California as like this tropical paradise has like hijacked the airwaves for just a few seconds. And you're you're like listening to the cartoon of California for a second right there. <laughs> well, can I ask you too, uh, Rich and Mike, since you are both from California and Mr. Bungle is based in Northern California. Yeah. They're very much <laughs> focused on Southern California culture. Is there any kind of significance there as far as them as outsiders kind of riffing on these things or is it just 
they're from mm, California. Whatever. It's, it's hard to say because it's hard to sum up California like as a concept. But like, it, again, if you talk to if you read interviews with Trey Speranz, he'll talk about like, you know, how it's like the this album is like kind of a comment on like California as the end of quote unquote manifest destiny and just like all of the and, and like how it's beautiful, but also has like the largest prison population in the country and mm-hmm. ju- just all the thi- all the things like that. Uh, the main thing that I have to say is that I, I really like In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I'd say the the song that best summarizes the part of California I live in is uh, "Those Damn Blue Collar Tweakers" by Primus. <laughs> what? Not Danny California? No. <laughs> California doesn't have teeth. It's a state. States don't have teeth. Uh, anyway, Mike, what do you think of this song? Oh, I love Sweet Charity. Uh, the most surprising thing about it is how subtle it is. You know, if you're you're coming to it from hearing Disco Volante or even just reading about what Mr. Bungle sounds like, this is not the sort of thing you'd expect. And it starts out with the, the ocean noises and the, the sort of stock Hawaiian music. Y- you come into it thinking, oh, I get it. They're doing lounge exotica. Like, when's when's the death metal part going to drop? And it, <laughs> it never does. It's just as soon as Mike Patton starts singing, it's a, a totally different song. And it's it's a gorgeous song. I mean, the melody and chord changes and arrangement are all just yeah, it's it's a thing of beauty. But it's also got there's just these very subtly uh, unsettling undercurrents, like those those real high strings that are just just a little too. They're just like an octave too high for comfort. Hmm. Or the way those those little interjections of. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what's interesting here is the sounds in this song are very, very reminiscent of something you would hear on Pet Sounds. But something I, and I don't remember who said this, but uh, an observation I remember somebody making about uh, the way Brian Wilson would, would write was that his his chord progressions always feel, they're always going upward. And it's, it's they, they, they feel like he's ascending to heaven almost. It makes you feel so bad. It makes your heart feel sad. And I'm not positive because my knowledge of music theory is pretty basic, but this song feels like it's constantly going down. Oh, yeah. Hmm. This song feels like it's constantly descending. <laughs> and the feeling I get is that you're you're checking into what you think is this swanky tropical hotel and then gradually realizing that you're really in the hotel from Barton Fink. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you the life of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of another classic like commentary on California movie, The Graduate, and how uh, it begins with like a voice on an airplane saying, you know, we're making our initial descent into Los Angeles. And that sets the entire thematic <laughs> tone from the, for the movie. Hmm. I never even thought about that. It's the last thing I have to say about this song that I think is kind of interesting, which is that this is about as commercial and mainstream as this album ever gets. But how commercial and mainstream was this for a major label album in 1999 aimed at an alternative music crowd? You know, what's funny to me about that whole the Warner Brothers thing, too, is, you know, Faith No More was on Slash Records, which was like the Warner Brothers cool subsidiary, you know, the the cool imprint that like the Violent Thins were on, X was on. Mr. Bungle's on is on Warner Brothers Records, which always seem odd that they got like 
the big old brand a label which i think that was funny to mr bungle too <laughs> because i know like on their debut album they had, there was a song on there called carousel where if you compare the original demo to the released version they surreptitiously changed one of the lyrics to will warner brothers put this record on the shelf yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they were just surprised that they got the deal and they were halfway expecting it to fall apart at any second well and they can do the cute deal where they like reverse and flip the warner brothers labeled as an mb for mr bungle they've got some right. good mileage out of that label too or that logo all right well let's move on so this album has one hell of a track too this is called none of them knew they were robots That's a real jarring yeah. shift. Yeah. <laughs> great bit of sequencing sweet charity kind of eases us into this theme and gives you a little bit of a false sense of normalcy and you have the nice extended fade out and then you just get this sudden blast of cacophony like you're falling backwards into a nightmare and then once the smoke clears you're in full-on mr bungle mode where we're just toggling between rockabilly and big band swing you got all these weird rubbery sound effects where it all just sounds like a big six minute long cartoon yeah apparently the song was originally just called rockabilly <laughs> like and I, I can hear that like the way the walking bass groove is doubled by like a surf guitar with a lot of delay and uh yeah it's it's really cool rockabilly is actually one of the bridges between swing music and what eventually became rock and roll so it's like a little history lesson yeah, you got the twangy guitar lines. Yeah, it's and it was written, I think, entirely by Trey Spruance, the guitarist. Yeah. So he he has a lot of fun with this. And there's a lot going on. Um, so it's probably a good place to speak about the recording process of the album. It was recorded just before Pro Tools, I guess, was becoming a more widely used thing. So it was all recorded on analog tape, which proved to be a massive undertaking considering the ambition of this album uh you know again they had i think i mentioned earlier they had 14 additional musicians just throughout the course of the album they recorded in three studios and so they started with a 24 track machine quickly ran out of tracks so they connected a second 24 track machine spilled over again Oops. Uh, i believe they used something called an adat which is that a digital tape machine yeah yeah I guess that kind of filled in the gaps, but 
there's up to 72 tracks on certain songs here. And I imagine this is probably one of them or getting close to it because it's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's stuffed into this. Yeah, I think it's notable. Like if you look at the cre- if you look at the credits, all five members of Mr. Bungle are credited with production. But Trey Spruance also has a credit for, quote, production strategy which yeah. is the only time I've ever seen that credit. And uh, on top of that, I want to give a special shout out to the team that engineered and mixed this album. And I'm going to name them Billy Anderson, Gibbs Chapman, Josh Heller, Adam Munoz, Justin Phelps, and Rob Worthington, like six people right there. Because like, <laughs> uh, uh, well, some of these tracks would have, uh, have like a two second snippet of like one instrument or sound effect taking it. And that's what the track is for. And if you need needed to compress or remix the song in any way, like before pro tools, the engineer would have to like take into account every one of those stray bits of music so that it all sounded consistent it was yeah it was a nightmare to put together and you know i i think it was worth it because as much of a mishmash as this album is it also sounds very earthy and organic like it doesn't sound cut and paste uh, when a style shifts into another style it all just blends together and i kind of wonder i used to think that the sound effects were just there to be to, to add color but i wonder if they're kind of uh, the glue that sort of makes some of the transitions flow a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I think. Yeah. I yeah. think it makes it all work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, M- Mike, do you have anything to say about the, this as a production? Something that I remember reading is that when they when they ran out of tracks, they added another 24 track machine. They added the eight at. But also what they would resort to was if they had some piece of the arrangement that they didn't have room for, they would just find a blank spot on another track and punch it in. <laughs> it sounds like it would have taken six people to mix this yeah. just to keep track of where everything was. And a production strategist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they must've had a big chart with everything graphed out. I can't even imagine. What do you think of the song? Oh, my reaction to this song is just slack jawed. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, yeah, it's a, a big band swing slash rockabilly song, but Brian Setzer would never write a song like this. This sounds like Brian Setzer having a horrible nightmare. And this is the soundtrack. <laughs> this would be in a Gap commercial. Well, that's that's one of the things that's funny about this song to me is that like this is right when the whole like swing revival was happening. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so for our younger listeners, if such listeners even <laughs> exist uh, in the late 90s, there was a swing music revival with bands like, yeah, the Brian Setzer Orchestra, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and Royal Crown Review. And it was over almost as soon as it started. None of us knew where it came from or why it happened. And it was really weird. <laughs> you know, I had a weird thought because yeah, the movie Swingers was like 96. Mm-hmm. But did everyone just watch The Mask in 1994 and go, hey, Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it might have been something that came out of the movies because there was, de- I mean, Royal Crown Review is the band in the mask at the end. Oh, and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, I think, is in Swingers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I'm not sure whether the song was inspired by that movement or whether it's a spoof of it. But either way, this song has always like sounded to me like a swing revival in hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very much. Like skeletons dancing. Like the Robot <laughs> Satan song from Futurama. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cigars are evil, you won't miss them We'll find ways to simulate that smell What a sorry fella Rolled up and smoked like a Canatella Here on level one of Robot Hell Beyond all that, there's just so much happening in this song There are more ideas in this song than most bands come up with in their entire career arcs And harmonically, it's just insane I mean, you don't come up with songs like this by just experimenting. Yeah, and it must be said, so we haven't even talked about the lyrics, which are 
off the chain. Oh, bananas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I'm just going to read the first verse here and I could just, uh, you, this this applies to the entire song, but I don't want to quote the entire thing. So Mendel's machines replicate in the night in the black iron prison of St. Augustine's light. He's paying the bills and they're doing him proud. They can float their burnt offerings on assembler clouds with Omega Point in the sight. The new Franklins fly their kites and the postmodern empire is ended tonight. And and there are a couple of verses that are in Latin and yeah, it's just, God, there's so much packed into this song. Yeah. So Phil, what do you think of it? I mean, I think you've summed up most of what makes this song so cool because I mean, I think it's an incredibly cool song. I just kind of wonder with, with songs like this and some of the other songs coming up on the album, how in the hell did they play this live? No idea. Like yeah. how would they replicate this? Cause we talked in the most recent episode before this about how when the Moody blues recorded to our children's children's children, they just couldn't play it live. And this is music that seems like it would be exponentially more difficult to play live than to our children's children's children. I think I did read that they were kind of tied down to some samples directly from the album, mm-hmm. which kind of mm-hmm. made them sort of like very mechanical performances because it was just so tied down. But even still. And they had some touring session musicians uh, on the road with them. Just singing these songs. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how Mike Patton would, would sing these songs live. There would need to be like three of them. I don't know how Mike Patton does most of the things he does with his voice. So I just well, you know, defer true. to him. <laughs> yeah. but, but this album is very much a studio production. Yeah. This doesn't seem like a band wrote some songs and they're laying them down so they can take them on the road. The other thing that's noteworthy about this song to me is just... So their previous album, Disco Volante, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's okay. I find it interesting. But a lot of the times I don't find it much more than interesting. I'm like, well, that's very creative, I will think, Mm -hmm. while I have really kind of no reaction to it. This song kind of feels like some of the songs on that album. But one of the differences in California is that they're a little bit more tied down to some traditional forms. So they do all their crazy billions of chord changes, billions of different parts all glued together. But it's got kind of an underpinning of like surf guitar and it ties everything together and kind of gives it a center and just makes everything work so wonderfully on this album, in my opinion. Just to jump off what Phil said about Disco Volante, I think a good illustration of uh, what Disco Volante sounds like. I want to put a clip here from a song called Carry Stress in the Jaw, (laughs) which goes from a first verse into a free jazz section into a death metal section. That's your structure. There's, it gives you nothing to hold on to. Yeah, it's very collage art. 
in comparison yeah. to this album. But I, I think I actually read Trey Spirant say directly that in an, in an interview when he was talking about like the sound of California versus Disco Volante. That makes a lot of sense. Right. But this is not music that is less complex. It's no. just it just has a far more approachable center. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, let's move on to track three. It is called Retro Psycho. I mean, Retro North by Northwest. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, third time's a charm. Retro Vertigo. Retro Topaz. <laughs> Retro The Trouble with Harry. <laughs> Retro Marnie. Retro, Retro Frenzy. frenzy. <laughs> Jinx. Well, this one brings us back down to earth for a minute. It was written entirely by bassist Trevor Dunn, and it is what, on the surface at least, seems like a fairly straightforward, sweet, wistful melody. Uh, but as Dunn explains it, the lyrics here hint at something a bit darker. Uh, his quote is, My state of mind was disillusionment with the world or society that values image and money over human life. While certain retro fashions and lifestyles are considered hip, the ongoing tradition of human suffering continues. As the world progresses technologically, certain people value and emulate the good old days, while others are born into poverty, having never progressed past the dark ages. The title Retro Vertigo is a term I came up with to describe my nausea regarding this phenomena. At the time, I was living in San Francisco, where swing dancing, hey hey, was making a comeback, Silicon Valley was exploding, and vintage clothes were expensive. And the notion that anything could be bought or sold, a soul, a tragedy, the end of the world, seemed viable. That, that reminds me of uh, Corduroy by Pearl Jam, which we talked about a few uh, yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. Except taken in a Another much, great song. Except the theme is taken in a much like more sweeping and dark direction, which sounds like Mr. Bungle. Yeah, it's more of a global uh, disdain. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they've come a long way from squeezing macaroni in terms of uh, <laughs> lyrical maturity. Yeah. Um, what's funny to me is from what I've read, they had a glimmer of hope that they might get some airplay from this album. And I know he, I know Trace, uh, or Trevor Dunn mentioned doing a remix of this song and one of the Warner Brothers A&R guys walking in just being bored and walking out immediately. <laughs> no interest. Um, wow. And, and I have a hard time imagining this lighting up the charts in 1999, but I guess weirder things have happened 
if the butthole surfers could have a fluke hit in the 90s, why not Mr. Bungle? Why not Mr. Bungle? Yeah, uh, I, I, I really like this one. This is one of the straighter ones. I do detect a slight bit of hamminess in Patton's performance, which I don't know if, it's a, if that's intentional or if that's just the, what I'm hearing in it. Um, but either way, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little ballad that's kind of a little life raft you know, along the way for, for normal listening. There's always a little bit of hamminess in Mike Patton's vocals to the yeah. point where it can be a little hard sometimes to tell whether he's being sincere or if he's taking the piss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just kind of he, you're always on that razor edge with Mike Patton's vocals. You never really know. Yeah, he's he's still just a singularly talented vocalist, though. Yeah. Like I, I specifically wanted to talk about him on this song because, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of session musicians on this album, but he's the only vocalist, and that's like all him on this song doing the multi-tracked harmonies and that beatboxing during the second section. Oh, really? He's in the beatboxing? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, oh, that, 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 that sounds like Mike Patton to me. Yeah, he yeah, yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's really funny that the whole Red Hot Chili Peppers feud is primarily between him and Anthony Kiedis because uh, I, I know I, I don't want to diss on the Chili Peppers too much, but I can't think of a bigger talent differential between two <laughs> members of either band. <laughs> yeah, Kiedis is a uniquely limited vocalist, while Patton is a completely limitless vocalist. And it just so happens that one of the things Patton can do is what Kiedis does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Phil, what do you think of Retro the Birds? I, I think this is another incredibly great song. I love the production. I love how it's got that big crescendo to the end. Mm. And again, Mike Patton's vocals on this. People associate Mike Patton with making weird noises or doing all kinds of stuff. But here, like, he has some just beautiful vocal harmonies that are just all him with himself. And just the, the the way the song is arranged, the little, like, I don't know the instrument, like, that makes those little tinkling sounds. Might, just, be, a, might be a Celesta. I, th- I think it's a Celesta. Not sure. But yeah, this is just another gorgeous song. And I do love how this album really kind of has two modes, normal but somewhat weird songs and madness. Hmm. <laughs> And you kind of get a bunch of both, but neither diminishes the other. Like, this song doesn't feel out of place, even though it's jammed right between the air-conditioned nightmare and none of them knew they were robots. Yeah, and the, and the madness might feel exhausting if it weren't for stuff like this to kind of give breathers in between. Yeah. Right. That's my problem with Disco Volante. Yeah. It's all madness, and it's like 70 minutes long. Yeah. This album is like 45 minutes long, and only like half of it is madness. It's much more palatable. Well, apparently this song sort of enabled the rest of the album. Like it it was something Trevor Dunn was cobbling together, but he was worried that it was like too much of a pop ballad for Mr. Bungle. Uh, But then when the rest of the band heard it, they came up with like the whole idea of using the album as like sort of Mr. Bungle's twisted take on pop music. So it's sort of the keystone track of the album in a way. And I I like in this particular case, they resisted the urge to mess with the structure too much and just keep it relatively normal. So, Mike, what do you think of uh, Retro Dial M for Murder? <laughs> Never gets old. My favorite thing about Retro Foreign Correspondent is uh, <laughs> just, just how over the top the big drums are at the end. Yeah. It's like they decided if, if we're going to put big power ballad drums in this song, we need to go all out and make them the biggest drums. It was the right decision.
I also love how subtly dissonant the thing is. Yeah, that's a great little kind of twist. Absolute right decision to do that with the production and drums. It, it reminds me of the big bursts of drums on the soft bulletin by the Flaming Lips, like a, yeah. a, a spoonful weighs a ton and the spark that bled. And all the distortion. It's just so satisfying when it hits. But uh, I want to break the title of this song down a little bit because the I know Trevor Dunn wrote this one, but uh, what the retro part always makes me think of is there's there's two different Mike Patton interviews uh, where he expresses his disdain for retro anything. One of them he's he's being interviewed at some uh, some big festival and uh, Wolf Mother are playing in the background. <laughs> yep. And these are all things that really I've been wanting to do for five years. So, in a strange way, are you hearing this? <laughs> <laughs> what year are we in? Forgive me, but Wolf Mother, you suck. Wow. And there's another much earlier one uh, that he did for MTV while visibly high. And he's talking about how when he walks into a record store, he doesn't even look at the rock section anymore. He just goes straight to the movie soundtracks, hmm. which leads me to the vertigo part, because, I mean, you can't you can't see the word vertigo and not think of the movie Saboteur uh, <laughs> to catch a thief. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the most memorable aspects of the movie Vertigo is Bernard Herrmann's score for that movie. And I hear a lot of Bernard Herrmann influence in this song, particularly the way the chords just refuse to resolve or resolve in a way that you're expecting or would be satisfied by. And I've, I've actually got a clip here from uh, the prelude to Vertigo that I think illustrates this. That was directly inspired by Wagner's prelude to Tristan and Isolde, but he's he's making the dissonance even more painful and drawn out. Okay, well, that was a great discussion of Retro the Lady Vanishes. So let's move on to track four, The Air Conditioned Nightmare. He's out of nowhere. 
think one of the true accomplishments of California is that it's generally considered the easy Mr. Bungle album, and yet one of its most infectious tracks still manages to be this insane. For all of the uncompromising experimentation of this of Disco Volante, I actually think it's a more impressive feat that the band was able to craft something this wild and put it into a relatively approachable and catchy package. Yep. Like, they actually had the discipline to make all those crazy ideas work together. Patton is back in the lyrics here, and one of the things I love about this song is it's not entirely clear what's going on with the song's protagonist, where he is, what happened to him. Uh, it seems like he was in some kind of accident because he's there's a wheelchair, there are bandages, but it doesn't really say what's happening. The production here is just a complete treat. It's an incredibly exciting ride between the peppy surf rock, the spy guitar riffs, and that paranoid left and right hard painting of a get me out of this air-conditioned nightmare. I'm in mono, so it won't have the same effect. But uh, it, it builds to this giant blast of metal, which one of the things I find funny about Mr. Bungle, because I saw where Trace Bruins actually mentioned this, where a lot of people who come to Mr. Bungle for the experimentation often find the metal annoying like it's this novelty they just sprinkle onto their songs but they began as a metal band so to them that's like their roots yeah peeking through and they do these little like just random blasts of just shredding but the thing here is for all of these weird ingredients it doesn't sound like a random mess it manages to pull these ingredients together from this Mostly, it's kind of steeped in the broad genre of surf rock. You've got the Dick Dale guitar, the wipeout drums, but it throws them into this really unique construction. It's, it's a total like just showcase of everything that the band can do well. It's fantastic. It is. So as we've said already several times, there's a whole bunch of Beach Boys influence on this album. But like this song is the track that was explicitly intended as a Beach Boys homage. In fact, it was apparently originally just called Beach Boys. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to guess that like Rockabilly, that was a working title before they came up with like the more interesting titles. But uh, so we, we already talked about Pet Sounds, but apparently they were especially inspired by like the unfinished album Smile and the way the tracks on that album were like little sweets where like fragments of the most beautiful music you've ever heard would just like crash right into goofy songs about, you know, eating your favorite vegetables with Paul McCartney chomping on a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> I turned away my candy bar. And California does kind of feel like a finished 90s version of Smile, except, you know, much more collaborative. Like, uh, apparently the basic catchy melodies and instrumental parts in this song were composed by Bear McKinnon. And then Mike Patton added lyrics and just like mashed it all together into this like demented, you know, pocket symphony to Satan 
or something. <laughs> yeah, and also regarding the whole Beach Boys connection, I have a couple of clips to play. So in 1998, Trey Sperance was asked to contribute to a Beach Boys tribute album called Smiling Pets. Uh, so his band Secret Chiefs 3 recorded a couple of covers of songs from Smile. And, you know, the first is the big one, Good Vibrations. It's weird she comes in so strong. I love that he used the pre-Mike Love lyrics. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say the same thing, yeah. And you might be wondering, who's doing the vocals on that song? Well, they are Greg Turkington, also known as anti-comic Neil Hamburger. <laughs> no way! Wow. Yep. I give his performance on that song five bags of popcorn. <laughs> yeah, and they also did a cover of Heroes and Villains. And I wasn't able to confirm whether that was Greg Turkington on vocals, but that sounds like Mike Patton doing the beatboxing again. I'm not sure. May very well yeah. be. Yeah, but anyway, as you can hear, the Beach Boys run very deep with this band. Well, and the, the fade out of the song is straight up Pet Sounds. Like, it sounds like it's just straight off the record. That's some of the best reverb <laughs> I think I've ever heard. See, who needs the Wrecking Crew when you've got (laughs) 72 tracks at your disposal? So, Mike, what do you think of this one besides the reverb? I once put this song on a mix for a girl. Whoa. (laughs) I believe it was track two. I think the beginning of the mix went... Wherever I lay my phone, that's my home by the super furry animals. Nice. Air-conditioned nightmare, and then kites are fun by the free design. (laughs) That is a nice easing of tension right there. That's great. (laughs) And I I think later on, I I threw Knots by Gentle Giant on there. There was no second date. I'm going to assume that was purely coincidental. (laughs) Anyway, the the song itself, uh, I like how they, they come back to the general Beach Boys well, except this time the shoe actually drops and you get like the crazy metal section and everything else happening. It's like, yeah, now they're being the Mr. Bungle you're more accustomed to. I agree with what Dan said that the the most impressive thing about this song, I think, is how musically coherent it all is. I mean, it's so all over the place, but it never stops being fun. I think it's it's easy in a sense to just be experimental and weird i mean you can just you can hit an untuned guitar with a hammer and hey you you made a jandek album but uh <laughs> this is this is just so smart it takes a lot of takes a lot of work and a lot of know-how to make music this crazy that still makes sense and is fun to listen to there's a moment at the beginning of this song where the first time i heard it i laughed out loud and i think oh, that yeah. had to be the intent and that is when the like lush opening vocal part just gives way to bop 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 
it's just it's good comic timing yeah yeah oh yeah the, the comic timing on that is perfect you've mostly summed up you know why this is a great song i'll just say this like so i know people like find like the metal like the part of mr bungle they don't like i approached mr bungle from metal hmm. so to me when they like start breaking into metal that's a life raft hmm. so i just loved like how again this song breaks into metal like twice for like two seconds yeah <laughs> <laughs> so there's metal here and it's like four seconds of the song total <laughs> it's true yeah and it and it works. It's just so funny that they would, you know, decide to throw metal in here and make the metal so heavy sounding and make it such a minor part of the song. Yeah. But it works because these guys just construct music so smartly that it just all works. It's true. It's like, what if Smile had metal on it? That's the one thing it was lacking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK, let's go on to track five. So they're busting out the Latin again. This is Ars Moriendi. <laughs> Ars <laughs> he who wins in the best silence, he who was overwhelmed in extremis. Now we're really starting to just jerk the wheel between genres at the drop of a dime. Uh, but hey, who's up for some Eastern European surf house music, metal, whatever? Me. Sure. I am. I was actually surprised to see that Mike Patton wrote this because uh, it really seems in line with the kind of thing that Trace Fruance does with Secret Chiefs, which is really based in a lot of Eastern European stuff with the violins uh but no this is apparently all Patton and you know with Bungle it's it's hard to tell who does what a lot of times uh yeah I think I went into Mr. Bungle thinking naively that well Mike Patton is the the front man he does everything but no they're they're actually pretty democratic I think they might write separately but they're they're all very involved songwriters who just bring in just all these weird influences I do kind of think that Mike Patton might be the songwriter that's the most prone to just shoehorning in as many genres as possible in like a bar of music. But uh, <laughs> one thing I like to point out, though, is 
it might be easy to get the impression that they are just kind of flippantly plugging in styles just for the novelty of it. Uh, but their tastes really are just this eclectic. Uh, I found an interview with Trey Sperance where he, the interview asked him about the Middle Eastern influences on the album California. And he is quick to correct them and say, well, there actually are not any Middle Eastern influences on the album. This song in particular is Romani style. So they know their stuff. They actually listen to this music and they understand it and have a real respect and appreciation for it, which again, they're not just like farting around with these different styles just to be goofy. Like they really understand it. And I guess I could also point out that again, this album came out in 1999, which means that they didn't have like YouTube where you could just go and listen to a whole bunch of different kinds of music easily. Yeah. They had to dig yeah. to get to this music because it was the the before times when uh, music was a lot harder to access. <laughs> the other before times. Which makes, uh, you know, the depth of their knowledge just that much more impressive. Well, one thing I learned about Mike Patton is that before joining Faith No More, he worked as a record store clerk in Eureka. And th th that kind of reminds me of like Quentin Tarantino working at a video store and how like both artists yeah. like do art that's this like mashup of all of their favorite influences. But Phil, what do you think of this one? Uh, it's another fantastic one. It again, it's it's a song that you almost shouldn't work because it's shifting around so much. It feels like it should just be a whole bunch of just random parts glued together, but it never feels that way. It actually feels coherent no matter how many wild left turns it takes. And every single part of it is memorable. Like I get this song stuck in my head like constantly because there's so many memorable parts to it. It's a collection of bits that are all fantastic on their own and they somehow work together, which I am again just amazed that there was a band talented enough to have to both have the ambition to even try something like this and, you know, the ability to actually pull it off. Mike, how about you? I don't have a, a ton to add to what you three have already said. I do have a clip to play here, though. If you like when Mr. Bungle do this general kind of thing, there is an album by Secret Chiefs 3 called Book M with a lot of this sort of Eastern European slash Middle Eastern types of music mixed with pounding techno. <laughs> uh, the song I have a clip from is uh, it's called Horseman of the Invisible. awesome yeah I, I never i actually never heard secret chiefs three beyond the beach boys covers i played earlier i'm gonna have to check them out they're really interesting they're very good yeah i don't know their albums very well but i saw them live once and they they were there's something else <laughs> they, were, they were a band to see well i also have a clip to play so we, we dan mentioned that uh this is inspired by romani music and in, in particular this song reminds me a lot of the band gogol bordello who play a mixture mm. of punk rock and romani music dogs were barking monkeys clapping Bears were dancing, and girls were cutting loose. Cops were lurking, kids were snarkling. Then her father came up to me and said, 
выбывали когда-нибудь на выставке собак She was a 545, наше дело табак Да я же старый добрый отца, And Google Bordello actually played a double bill with the reform Faith No More in 2015. So there is an established connection between them and Mike Patton. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, we have reached the halfway point of this album. So much stuff has gone on so far. I can't believe it's only halfway done. That remind, it reminds me of the uh, A Wizard, A True Star episode in that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was side one? Yeah. So track six is called Pink Cigarette. I love that guitar tone. Yeah. Mr. Bunkle quoted as being the musical equivalent of a David Lynch movie. And I've seen enough times where I've been hesitant to use it, but if I'm going to use it once, it's going to be for this song because this one gives me the most Lynchy vibes. I can totally imagine Dean Stockwell lip syncing this into a lamp in blue velvet, (laughs) a smoker's jacket. This is one of my favorite songs in the album. It's relatively simple and straightforward by Bungle standards, but it's just such an effective bit of storytelling put to music. Again, the production instrumentation here is immaculate. Uh, I love the reverberated guitar and that exotic English horn line that just kind of gives it an eerie little feeling uh, through the verses. It, it paints such an evocative bit of scenery around the tale of romantic betrayal that slowly builds to what is Maybe my favorite moment in the entire album, which is the chilling coda that counts down to the actual discovery of the the song subject's hanging body.
and the song features what is most likely my favorite Patton performance. He he's not scraping the depths of all of his crazy vocal contortions like he does with the Phantomas, but he just simply delivers an incredibly compelling performance here. There's so many layers to it, uh, just different timbres to his voice. It's it's a really just a, a a great performance. Well, regarding that ear splitting ending, so Trace Perrant said that at one point they actually considered releasing an album of Static just to see if <laughs> Warner Brothers was actually paying attention to them, but they backed <laughs> off on that idea. This is one that actually kind of passed me by on the first few listens. It's I didn't consider it like a low point of the album or anything, but I would I would hear the beginning and think, oh, okay, they're doing like moody 50s balladry. Okay. And then I would just kind of space out. And that ending would always catch me off guard. I just forgot it was there and wouldn't see it coming. And that's when I started looking into it a little bit more and realizing how incredibly dark it actually is. (laughs) And I I agree with I agree with Dan that this is this is Lynchian as all hell. It's it sounds like Mulholland Drive to me yeah. most of all, except that that movie hadn't even come out yet. Oh yeah, but uh, you know a lot a lot of Mister Bungle stuff is more uh, it's more Inland Empire <laughs> in terms of <laughs> in terms of being just a series of incomprehensible things happening. And the ending is that one shot of Laura Dern's face. You know the one I'm talking about. <laughs> oh. God, that's that's why I refuse to watch Inland Empire again. But uh, yeah, I think this this is a, a very, very well done song. That's it's also much like Sweet Charity, very uh, surprising in its in its subtlety, at least up to that ending. So this isn't just my favorite song on this album. Like this is one of my favorite songs, just like period. Mm, that's great. I really love this song. I've always gotten like kind of an Ennio Morricone vibe. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. especially the beginning. Certainly at the beginning, but just the way the guitar sounds throughout it. But just in general, this is just a spectacular song. Lots of it has to do with the production, like every little element of the production from the guitar to the horn to the vocal harmonies, just all clicks and then again, when you get to the end, when you have that like countdown to discovering the hanging body and it just kind of builds and builds and you have like these screams in the background while like the vocal harmonies get like louder and higher. Just it's just absolutely spectacular music. Like there are a few songs that like paint like a picture quite as well as the music does in this song. This is certainly my favorite Mike Patton vocal performance because he's not doing, you know, crazy Mike Patton things, but he just demonstrates just how well he can sing, how good a decision he makes about what to sing. Yeah, Mike Patton's vocals are really all over the place on this song. You got falsetto, you got like crooning and that that cackling that he does like kind of in the background to, to texture yeah. it. There's just They're like little so whispers. Much. Yeah, and it's just, uh, I mean, this is, you know, a, a simple pop song like like Retro Vertigo, you know, simple in air quotes, but there's just so much going on here. It's like, yeah, you mentioned Ennio Morricone, but it's like, it's like if he decided to score a doo-wop song for one of Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns. And it's just, you know, com- I guess that's what makes it Lynchian. Uh, I, I guess like that kind of mashup, that uncanniness. But it, it just just in, re- in regard to like the basic melody of the song, like Trace Bruance says that he wrote it pretty quickly. But actually producing the song was where the devil was really in the details. Again, you got that production strategy again. Yeah. Uh, and in the same interview, he said that like producing and arranging like complex, non-standard, unique pop music is actually much, much more difficult than avant-garde music. 
And, uh, and I totally get that because like, you know, going back to Disco Volante, like if something went wrong on that album and it probably did, it could just be written off as a happy accident because that album really is just like collage art. It's a bunch of stuff smashing into each other. But like if any musical element were out of place on Pink Cigarette, it would just feel strange in a bad way. And yeah. just this album just gets more and more impressive to me the more I think about it. And this is yeah definitely one of the most like exquisite productions on the entire thing. To me, what about the most Im- impressive thing about the production is that there's a million things going on, but you don't even necessarily notice all of them unless you're like really zero in and start listening for them. And it also never feels cluttered or overproduced despite mm-hmm. just how much ha- is happening. That's just an amazing, amazing production that I feel like the production on this album, to me, this is one of the best produced albums of all time. I don't think it gets enough credit for that. Yeah, you can hear all 72 tracks on this song, but, you know, not in a cluttered way. Like, they're all necessary. They're all necessary and they all have. It's really hard to layer so many things in a piece of music without them getting in each other's way. And these all complement each other. They all have their own space. And that's the production you don't notice is often the most impressive, I think. Okay, well, let's move on to track seven. This is Gollum 2, The Secret of the Ooze. No, the bionic vapor (laughs) boy. Trace Bruant's joint, uh, which surprises me because it's so playful in a way that I don't think most of his compositions usually are. I don't have a whole lot to say about this one, to be honest. I think when we were talking about it leading up to the show prep, is it how much this sounds like Ween? Yep. Um, <laughs> I also hear slight traces of like Midnight Vultures era Beck creeping in. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like get real paid. Yeah, um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's just so many odd, like the, the vocoder. Is that a vocoder, I'm guessing, or a vocoder type? I think it's a talk box. <laughs> ah, so they got Joe Walsh on this? Perfect. Yes. Okay. <laughs> or Peter Frampton. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, it's really fun. I mean, this it almost sounds like a demented children's song, which is kind of <laughs> Ween's wheelhouse. Uh, but uh, I like it, but I don't really know what to say about it other than that. Yeah, I, I figured with this particular group of four panelists, we were all going to just independently conclude that this song sounds like Ween because <laughs> it does. Uh, but what, what's funny is that like because uh, for all of their weirdness and tendency to like mash together genres, Mr. Bungle usually doesn't sound like Ween. Uh, I mean, they, they were definitely as juvenile as Ween on their first album. But like, I don't know, even then it sounded like they drew from a completely different pool of influences like Ska and Oingo Boingo and the Cardiacs and stuff. Uh, but, but but for some reason, for this one specific song, like Trace Bruance came up with something that would honestly like fit right in on Quebec. So many people in the neighborhood. So many people in the neighborhood. So many people in the neighborhood. Don't know if they're very good people. So many people in the neighborhood. So many people in the neighborhood. Phil, what do you think? So this is probably my least favorite of the crazy songs on this album. To me, it's I do like it because Mr. Bungle were just operating at such a high level here that I don't think they were going to crank out anything I didn't enjoy. But this is one that I always feel like it's more clever than uh, something I actually enjoy. It's like, oh, it's cool. They got the little wind up box music. Thing. They're doing that into like some kind of robot disco thing. This is all real neat, but that's kind of about all it is for me. It's neat. I I respect it more than I actually like it. Mike? Well, I, I think if you know me at all, you, you might uh, correctly have predicted that this is one of my favorite songs on the album. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, the, the, that checks out. <laughs> the point in the intro where the, the creepy music box music gives way to this this ridiculous robot funk that's the part of the album i laugh the hardest at every time the beck comparison was actually one i was about to make so i'm glad you mentioned that um i also get kind of parliament vibes from yeah, like yeah. the the masked group vocals we've got a real type of thing um <laughs> yeah. but also what it makes me think of most of all is uh on old horror movie soundtracks well not not old old but from like the 70s there's usually like a, a completely incongruous funk track. Yeah. Amidst all the, <laughs> the creepy music. And that's that's something I know is not lost on the members of Mr. Bungle. And I've actually got a few examples to play for you. Uh, the first is from Fabio Fritzi's score for The Beyond. <laughs> Uh, the next is from Goblin's soundtrack to Suspiria. Uh, next is from Ritz Ortolani's score for Cannibal Holocaust. And keep in mind, this is a film so disturbing and violent that it was banned in more than 50 countries. Next is from Fred Myro and Malcolm Seagrave's score for Phantasm. 
finally, this is from Godai Go's soundtrack to House. And to be fair, there's nothing congruous about that movie. <laughs> One great thing about this album is I wouldn't hesitate to call this like one of the minor tracks on it, but there's there's still so much going on here. Like you can just dig into every track on this album endlessly. Yeah, it's not one of my favorites, but there's just too much fun little details in here to write it off. And if you don't like headphones, at least like put your head between the speakers for this one, because that's like half the fun. So let's go on to track eight. This is the Holy Filament. Morricone. Yeah. Yeah, again. I just noticed that breathing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Filament was written by Trevor Dunn, beginning with a chord sequence that he came up with during the Disco Volante sessions. He later added the intro and bridge section after watching the Vim Vendors film Paris, Texas. And the music to that movie was written and performed by Ry Cooter, and it's really this more Americana slide guitar type of thing, which sounds nothing like this at all. So I have to imagine he was more inspired by the visuals of Harry Dean Stanton wandering down these big wide open shots of the barren desert, which gives it this spaghetti western sort of feel, like going back to Morricone. Great movie, by the way. And yeah. Our, yeah. Our, our second Dean Stockwell connection of the episode. <laughs> R.I.P., by the way. Well, we'll do a Quantum Leap reference soon. Uh, this is a song that passing by in the first few listens, uh, it has become one of the highlights for me. That chord sequence just it's it's got this uneasy quality to it but it's so beautiful it takes its time to reach its resolution which is part of what i think is so like kind of it's got this mystery to it and kind of an exotic sort of uh quality to it and on top of this you have that vocal melody which just does just these roller coaster rides up and down uh where Mike Patton hits this really huge peak high vocal that honestly gives me chills when I listen to it. And then it goes back to the weird spaghetti westerny thing with all the kind of just bleak emptiness. And then you kind of have these little guitar noodlings get more and more dissonant. And then the tension finally breaks with this piano and string intro. It's a really great moment on the album I think it's it's one of my favorite bits (laughs) 
wave kind of breaking through. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I'm really glad that Trevor Dunn held on to this music until the California sessions, because I don't know if it would have the same effect without this lush arrangement here that makes it sound just gigantic. It's this one that took time to grow on me, but I think it's a really stunning piece of music. Yeah, apparently this was inspired by the book The Big Bang Never Happened by Eric J. Lerner. And uh, he posits in the book that the universe is infinite in space and time, never had a beginning and will never end. And it, like, if there's one lesson I've learned from this podcast, it's that I can dig beneath the surface of almost any song and it will make me just feel like the smallest ant. I swear to God. <laughs> I, I do really like this song, though. It also didn't really jump out at me before, but it's one that really got under my skin. Like, I, apparently Trevor Dunn was experimenting with melodies that were more than four measures long. And, like, uh, resultantly, the song has, like, a scale and grandeur that kind of reminds me of, like, Cigarose or Spiritualized or something like that. Uh, hmm. The main difference is that those bands write, you know, beautiful music. And here, <laughs> Mike Patton makes, like, the sweep of existence sound absolutely terrifying. Like, it, it, this sounds like something out of the introduction to a creepy sci-fi movie about how your life has no meaning or something like that. But uh, on that note, Phil, what do you think of this one? See, to me, this is the song on the album that really sounds like Ween. Hmm. Like, oh. you could definitely throw this on the second half of Quebec, like, next to something like Alkin Road. Huh, yeah. And, like, it would totally work there. As for the song itself, like it's a, it passed me by for a long time because unlike a lot of songs on this album, it really doesn't seem to be trying to grab your attention. It seems very content to just kind of noodle around quietly in the background. There's no there's certainly no heavy metal breaks. There's no, you know, moments that give any kind of nod to pop song construction. Just a very odd little song. It's still not one of my favorites on the album, but I really do appreciate how it's constructed. And it's got a very complex, interesting vocal melody. And again, I don't love it, but I have grown to appreciate it a lot more. I do like that they on this album that they like really give songs space to breathe when they merit it. And, the, you know, it's not just like constantly like bits like the bossa nova part of sweet charity or the metal part of air conditioned nightmare like those parts are good for where they are but they're not doing it constantly because it would get right. like really tedious mm -hmm. like if they threw anything like that into the middle of this song it would be jarring this is the the sleeper hit of the album for me too uh i i think this is just unspeakably gorgeous yeah and also very evocative of the the terrifying vastness of space I think this is probably my favorite Mike Patton vocal performance on the album. Big part of that is that it just has the highest note. Yeah. Like he's he's <laughs> he's approaching mini Ripperton territory there. He has a six octave vocal range, I've read, right? I believe it. I've also I've got another clip here to play. I've I've seen comparisons Yay. made. <laughs> I've seen comparisons made between this song and a, a band called the Sea Nymphs. 
Oh, who yes. were uh, a side project of uh, members of the Cardiacs with uh, very little uh, guitar and pretty much no drums. So it's it has this very floaty. It sounds like it's made by jellyfish or something. But this is uh, a clip from a song called Up in Annie's Room. I really like the C-Nups. I had never heard of this band before. They are on the list now. Well, if you like Cardiacs, it's basically quieter Cardiacs. Yeah, it's it's Cardiacs that doesn't hit you in the face. Okay, penultimate track. This one is called Vanity Fair. You're not human. Sounds like a hit single. <laughs> Catchy, upbeat bit of doo-wop and soul with lyrics that seem to culminate with the protagonist castrating himself. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is one where I think because it's relatively normal, it almost feels the most like a pastiche to me over the other songs in the album that flirt with different styles. And I glossed over this one for a long time. Uh and I think that was a mistake because it's a lot of fun, even if it isn't just doing dozens of musical cartwheels at once. Uh, and it's a really smart bit of sequencing to play something this melodic and amiable here to kind of tee things up for the grand finale that's coming next. Uh, I think it works really well here. Um, as a song, it's not going to be one of my favorites ever, I don't think, but it's perfectly catchy. Sounds good, you know. Mike, do you like Vanity Fair? I like Vanity Fair. I, this has to be the weirdest doo-wop song I've ever heard. And I've heard The Air by the Mothers of Invention. <laughs> I was literally going to mention that song. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. The Ah. 
I feel like if Frank Zappa had lived longer and if, if you had played this song for Frank Zappa, he would have just looked at you and said, you just got 10 points. <laughs> also, the lyrics, as far as I can gather, I mean, the, the lyrics on this whole album are pretty inscrutable. But uh, as far as I can tell, it's a, it's about someone who wants to be made into a eunuch so that no one can sell him anything because... <laughs> It's only when you're completely free of both sexuality and capitalism that you can be yourself at all. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? Well, again, Mike brought up The Air, and I literally have that in my notes, that this song reminds me a whole lot of The Air by Frank Zappa. I think it also serves a very similar purpose, because The Air comes like right towards the end of side three of Uncle Meat. And it's basically kind of clearing the way for, you know, King Kong to come in and eat up all of side four. And much like the air, like nobody's going to cite the air as one of the highlights of Uncle Me. <laughs> and I think this serves a similar purpose. This is nobody's favorite song on California, but it works really well where it is. And it fits into the general sound of the album. And I wouldn't cut it, you know, certainly, because I think even as a relatively minor piece, it adds up to making the album as good as it is. Yeah, this is the one song on here I don't really care for, I have to admit. And because like Mike Patton's vocal performance, I, w I definitely would call it technically impressive. Like he's he's belting that out. He's not using his head voice right there. And that's just like stupendous to me. But he, he's still like reaching into that super high register he used way back on Epic. And that's mm -hmm. the one Mike Patton vocal tick that kind of grates on me, I have to admit. <laughs> And you guys all mentioned Frank Zappa and the air and Uncle Meat and stuff. And uh, like, I don't know, like I, I've said that a lot of this album reminds me of Zappa. And for the most part, that's a good thing. But here I, I personally don't <laughs> care for it. Like I've, I've always had trouble getting into Zappa to the level that you three have. And part of that is that like whole strain of like cartoonish, ironic doo-wop on stuff like Freak Out and Cruising with Ruben and the Jets. It's just, I don't know, it's just not my thing. Yeah, that's still pretty uh, controversial amongst his fans, even to this day. A lot of Zappa fans aren't a big fan. Okay, well, let's finish the album. This is the grand finale that Dan alluded to earlier. This is Goodbye Sober Day. Get ready.
there's no amount of this song you can clip that doesn't leave out 10 interesting things. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's the way to end an album. And essentially Mr. Bungle's career. This is one of those songs where it's hard to even imagine how they put this together. In terms of its construction, it was kind of similar to how Air Conditioned Nightmare was written, where uh, Bear McKinnon had kind of had these different melodies laying around and Mike Patton pieced them together and kind of added his own ideas to sort of glue it into this thing. <laughs> and it's another one where it just it, it is a huge feat to take these different ideas and have it sound this cohesive again, like for all of its weird twists and turns, it forms something that doesn't just sound like just a complete collage of randomness in terms of the, again, the, the production and mixing every few seconds, the song totally changes sonic textures where it's, you know, even if the style is the same, the texture is totally different. There's different compression. There's just different ambiance. It's really, really interesting. It never stops being interesting. And once you think you found your footing, the song suddenly dissolves as Mike Patton evokes a curse followed by this Balinese chant that throws us into death metal hell. Turns us to the familiar Latin tinged body of the song before it then just slides off of a cliff into this apocalyptic collapse where we are no longer in the nice beach from the beginning of the record. We hit the true anti-a-day-in-the-life chord here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, we're only in it for the money. <laughs> yeah. The song is like if a day in the life was mostly the part that spins out on the groove at the end. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, what a song. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I will say compared with like Air Conditioned Nightmare, since this is basically like the Air Conditioned Nightmare part two, it feels more like a bunch of stuff than a suite. Mm-hmm. But what stuff? This is such yeah. great stuff. And, and I don't know whether this song is meant to be funny, but like the part with the chanting is like possibly the funniest moment on the album. There's just like such a great comedic rhythm to like Patton's chuck, 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 like followed by this really heavy guitar groove coming in. Like it makes me laugh every single time. It's like it's like you're watching the Tasmanian devil put on a thrash metal concert or something like that. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's one of the most bonkers songs I've ever heard. It's the kind of song I have a hard time even describing it because, again, it's just a bunch of stuff thrown together is really what it feels like. But like you said, what stuff? That stuff is fantastic. It's good stuff. It, it kind of reminds me. So there is a Smashing Pumpkins B-side called Pasticcio Medley, which consists of uh, they had written a bunch of like riffs and stuff that they never really did anything with. And they just kind of slammed them all together for 20 minutes. But they don't actually do anything with it. They just like literally just like stop dead and cut into the next one. And it's one of the most unlistenable things you will ever listen to if you (laughs) make the poor decision to attempt to listen to it. Whereas here, it feels like the band had a bunch of like, you know, 15, 20 second long ideas and somehow found a way to glue them all into something coherent that actually works. Just again, it's a fantastic track front to back and one of my favorite songs on the album. It's a Mr. Bungle version of a McCartney special. It's a Bungle it special. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the most coherent piece on the album, but it, it's very effective as a closer at the way it just keeps pulling the rug out from under you. That middle section is just something else. When Mike Patton starts delivering that curse and there's there's all the reverb, it sounds like he's chanting from the, the top of a minaret or something. It's just so effective and eerie. And then. And then <laughs> you remember uh, in the intro to our Meat Puppets episode where I mentioned uh, an album of Balinese gomelin music? Of course. Are we going to hear it? <laughs> it's about to make a comeback. Yes. Clip. <laughs> Oh, wow. Crazy. I hear bits that show up in a Faith No More song. So was Mike Patton literally referencing like this specific style? Yes. This is this is a style known as Ketchak, also known as the Ramayana monkey chant. And uh, it's performed by a large group of, of men uh, arranged in concentric circles with their arms outstretched toward the center. And uh, they're all chanting the sound Ketchak in these interlocking patterns. And it's all it's all meant to represent this uh, this climactic battle between good and evil. And it sounds you would think listening to it that it's uh, this ancient tradition as old as a an Indonesian sunrise. But actually, it was it was invented in the 30s as a a tourist attraction by a German. 
That's some globalization right there. Again, like love these references to this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I also just want to reiterate how much money went into this music. Like there there are literally dozens of session musicians on this album making this like crazy shit. Like, this is kind of the final chapter of a story that we started telling way back in our Ween episode, like this era in the 90s when major labels like threw money at just the weirdest music they could find in in, like, you know, blind hopes of finding the next Nirvana. And California was kind of the final act for this entire movement in a way. Yeah. Okay. well, that was, again, a very grand finale for the album. So, Dan, do you have any concluding thoughts on Mr. Bungle, California and just, I don't know, these musicians in general? I mean, again, just kind of reiterate reiterate what I said at the beginning of the episode where Mike Patton's done like probably a dozen different projects. And I maintain that Mr. Bungle is still the most talented group he ever worked with. Uh, Just different guys bringing different ideas together, different influences and creating just endlessly interesting music. Uh, Again, the albums vary from accessibility and maturity um and i think this really is like their crowning achievement of they kind of i think worked out all their experimentation on disco volante and learned what to do with it i think on california where they had the discipline to make it into a cohesive statement and i think that's why it's I think their most impressive album. I, I want to jump off of the point that you made about Mike Patton specifically, because like, because back around when this came out, I was talking with our aforementioned friend, uh, Mr. Mark D. Prindle, like about how Patton was a genius. And Mark fired back on that, saying that he wasn't so much a genius. He just had a real knack for choosing collaborators. But ever since you guys talked about Miles Davis last year, I've been slowly getting into his music and I've, I've learned that a big part of what made Miles Davis great is that he had a really like finely honed sense of who to collaborate with. And that's kind of what's fun about Mike Patton. Absolutely. Yeah. Like uh, once you get into one of his projects, you can start exploring like the entire tree of his collaborators. And like, you know, you're not going to discover music on the level of Miles Davis. Like you're not going to find like a John Coltrane here, but it's still a great way to learn about like this whole interconnected world of outsider art, like Ipecac records and everything. And uh, California is my favorite individual album that Mike Patton has been involved with, but it's like, it, it can be just the starting point for a very, weird and interesting journey but phil uh, do you have any concluding thoughts yeah just california is a fantastic album one of my favorite albums of the 90s and to me clearly mr bungle's peak of their three original albums their first album was a lot of fun but the band you know was horribly immature and then on disco volante they had a lot more ideas and were much more experimental but hadn't quite learned how to actually pull things together into coherent music And this is their one and only album where it just all completely comes together and just works beautifully start to finish. I'm really curious where Mr. Bungle would have gone from here had they actually stayed together. But sadly, one of those questions we'll never have the answer to. You just have to kind of piece it together from the various Mr. Bungle members' later solo stuff. But yeah, just fantastic album i think this is about as far as they could go honestly like based on like interviews that i've read like trace perance and everyone said that like they were kind of just creative and interpersonally spent after finishing this album and i can understand why yeah trevor dunn said that if they'd done a fourth album it would just been unlistenable noise (laughs) so the world would save that i guess finally released that album of static on warner brothers (laughs) mike what about what about you uh i i think it's an absolute masterpiece it's one of the best albums of the entire 90s decade. And just to remind you, this this is the band that just 
two albums earlier was writing the girls of porn. <laughs> uh, just the growth that that took place is just unbelievable. And everyone involved in in the creation of this album was just operating at the highest possible level. And the best thing about it is you don't need to be some seasoned uh, lover of weird music to uh, to appreciate it. I mean, if if you if you just have a taste for the the somewhat odd, there will be lots of things here to love. Okay, so Dan, if somebody likes Mr. Bungle in California, what other recommendations do you have from like the wider world of Mike Patton, Trace Bruance, or you know just 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 any of these nutso people? Well, we'll say that if you are the adventurous type, I would recommend listening to Disco Volante. Uh, you kind of gotta be willing to deal with some 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 noise uh but much more so than this album uh but i, I think it's a really interesting album uh again it's this the one that kept me going after buying the debut and kind of going eh. so it's you know it, it's it's pretty wild but if you you know have a palette for for weirdness and dissonance i would say go for it uh i think it's i think it's a lot of fun should recommend a faith no more album and if i'm going to recommend one i think it might as well be the one that has another Miss, mr bungle uh member on it which is king for a day full for a lifetime after um the band had recorded angel dust which is kind of considered like their their masterpiece by a lot of people uh the guitar player jim martin quit the band mostly because he hated mike Patton's guts and so they brought in trace bruance on guitar to kind of as a quick you know, got to, to bring into the band. And I think it's their most stylistically diverse album. Uh, I know it, I think it critically didn't do very well. That is really the beginning of the end commercially for Faith and More as well. But I, I think it's one of their best albums. It's got a lot of interesting textures, a lot of Latin kind of stuff, some like lounge and soul music, some proggy type elements. It's a really interesting record. I think it's their best record. I think it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one a lot.
So in the spirit of my concluding remarks, I'm going to recommend another Mike Patton band called Tomahawk, which he formed yeah. in the late 90s and early 2000s with uh, Dwayne Dennison from the Jesus Lizard, John Stanier from Helmet, and Kevin Rutmanis from the Melvins and the Cows. Yeah. And the, the, the music isn't as stylistically wide ranging as Mr. Bungle or some of the stuff on like Faith No More's later albums. But if you want music that rocks really hard, but still leaves room for really creative arrangements, you should pick up their self-titled debut from 2000 and their second album, Mitt Gas. Mike, you got any recommendations? I do. Well, Secret Chiefs 3, I've I've recommended already. They're very well worth looking into. But also, if you like uh, the more melodic elements of California, I'm going to recommend a, a Mike Patton solo album called Mondo Cane, which is his album of covers of old uh, Italian songs recorded with a full orchestra. And there's no... There is some wackiness, but it's mostly just Mike Patton singing the hell out of these old Italian songs with these great arrangements backing them up. The song I have to clip is it's called deep down. It was written by Ennio Morricone for a movie called danger diabolique, which some of you might remember oh. from mystery science theater 3000. <laughs> deep, deep down. So, Phil, what do you got to recommend? So there's not really much else that sounds like California, not even in like, you know, the extended Mike Patton universe. So I decided to go looking for like, what's some music that I know that uh, was seemingly constructed in the same spirit? And I ended up coming up with Fred Frith's 1980 solo album, Gravity. Fred Frith, you may know if you know him at all. He was the main guy from Henry Cow. And his solo album, Gravity, basically found him collaborating with a bunch of musicians from around the world, combining his like kind of avant-garde musical style with world dance. And the result sounds a lot like some of the more dance-oriented moments of California, like Ars Moriende. If so, if you like uh, California, I would recommend giving that album a shot. 
right, and that's the end of California. It has fallen into the sea at last. Goodbye, California. <laughs> so our, our next album is going to be an exciting one. It's finally time. We're going to be talking about Sugar Ray's 1997 album, Floored, with the hit single Fly featuring Supercat. Oops, my mistake. I seem to have read that wrong. We're going to be talking about Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. I, I don't know how I got that wrong. I'm hosting it. So anyway, this is going to be our first movie soundtrack, and it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a pretty good movie and a great soundtrack. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy California and other albums by Mr. Bungle at your local record store, and you can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow us at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing is by me, Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to Mike for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. that he's one of your musical idols and he's talented no question but god don't you think that diminishes the contributions of the other members of his bands faith no more mr bungle i don't know maybe even tomahawk you've been reading my blog